and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 101, recorded on April 14th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. Let's start things out with a bunch of news that came out of Google Cloud Next. Let's just bust through some of this. All right, let's start with Anthos. I think that's how you say it, Mm -hmm. which is the new name of the Google Cloud Services platform. And it's not just a rebrand, is it? It's Google Cloud Services Platform, but not as you know it. Google's decided to give the service a new name, Anthos, but they've also expanded support to AWS and Azure. Yeah, you heard that right. It's competitors. They have decided that the way to win when you're the underdog is by supporting the competition. This will allow enterprises to use a single platform running on Google's cloud to deploy and manage their applications on any other cloud. The advantage really here is that enterprises get a single bill and have a single dashboard to manage all of their applications. And surprise, surprise, it's all powered by Kubernetes. It's Google's attempt at hybrid cloud, isn't it? Maybe they've been looking over at the IBM Red Hat acquisition thinking, hmm, people don't want to be locked into one particular cloud service provider. They want to be able to hedge their bets a little bit. And this seems like a very good strategy to me. It seems like you can't compete with AWS if you just do the same thing they're doing. You need to do something different. And what better way than to say, hey, you're not totally locked into us, even though I get the feeling that you kind of might be. Well, I mean, you get if you get hooked on that nice dashboard sauce, I think you would be. Um, Google says that uh, this is from their Google Cloud CEO, uh, Thomas Corain, uh, I think is how you say his last name. He said that customers are coming to them and saying, Google, Google, please give us an integrated solution that solves this problem. It's too much. And let's be honest, there is probably some truth there because IBM didn't buy Red Hat for no reason at all. Hybrid, integrated, multi-cloud architectures are supposedly the future. Nobody likes themselves some lock-in unless you're the vendor providing integration across all the services, then we'll lock into you. That is sort of their pitch here. But they're also kind of enticing it with a, we're going to have an open source spirit approach to this. And we're going to deeply integrate products of a number of open source companies and projects. And we're going to essentially make them first-party services, they say. I'll give you an example. Um, Where AWS has created replacements for some of these, Google is going to integrate the actual product of MongoDB or Redis Labs or Elasticsearch or many others, Confluent, uh, many others, right in as first-party services, but they're the genuine product that they will be then, in theory, creating some sort of financial agreement with and contributing back upstream. And again, they'll say, you can use us to to actually take advantage of these original open source projects and the multi-cloud environment, and you get it all with one bill and one dashboard. Yay, Google. And it doesn't leave a bad taste in the community's mouth like you have with AWS. Companies like MongoDB have spoken out very clearly against AWS and some of the practices that they've been engaging in. And for Google to say, look, we're not going to do that. We're just going to pay those companies their due, and we're going to give you those products exactly as they are, that just seems a very good strategy. It's probably not, from a business point of view, immediately a good strategy. Otherwise, Amazon would be doing that with AWS. But long term, it's probably a much better strategy because it just keeps the community on side. And it really lets Google position this as, we are open source first kind of company, and we're giving back to these projects. You know, it's a, it's a good guy Google story. Yeah, although Anthos itself is not open source, they do mention a lot of 
open source goodness there using Kubernetes, using all this open source technology. But fundamentally, at least from what I could find, I couldn't find any uh, source code or license or anything for Anthos. So it may be made of open source stuff, but ultimately it itself is not. What do you think of this name? This Anthos name. You got Azure, of course, you got AWS, and now you got Anthos. To me, it is, and maybe maybe it's the A name, I'm not sure, but it just feels like a cheap Azure ripoff name. And it's like another version of Google copying Microsoft. They are the new Microsoft. Possibly. I hadn't really thought about it. It just seemed to be a sort of quite well SEO'd name to me. It's not really, really anything else. Really? You don't see the similarity? They're both six-letter A names that are for a generalized cloud platform? Like, they couldn't have come up with something else. Google Cloud Platform, at least then you knew, you were getting the Google Enterprise Infrastructure. Like, that's awesome. I want that. I want to, I want to hire the Google Cloud. That's great. But now this, Anthos, it, it, sounds, like a, it sounds like a knockoff brand of Azure. Well, and it also has the same problem that Azure, Azure, Anthos, Anthos. Mm. (laughs) Oh, good. Good. I have heard the most creative pronunciations of Azure, Azure. I mean, all these kinds of crazy iterations of it. I, I just try to go by what the people on stage say. That's what I try to go by. Well, yeah, and they say Azure, but the word is Azure. But uh, let's not get into that. But <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is a bit similar. I hadn't really thought about it. it. It didn't jump out at me immediately. But now you've pointed it out, I suppose it is pretty obvious. Um, but surely the actual service itself is going to do the talking because Azure is something of an underdog to AWS anyway. And so, you know, they, they're both fighting for scraps, aren't they? Well, I agree with your characterization of their market position, but I would argue with the scraps thing. Um, Again, I go back to the Red Hat IBM acquisition. I think that was just such a wake-up moment for the community. Like, (laughs) this is a real thing here. And um, IBM, I mean, what the hell do they know, right? But IBM, right? They say 80% of the industry's workload hasn't moved to the cloud yet. The stuff that's come to the cloud, the 20% of work that's come to the cloud so far is the easy stuff. Now we got to move all the hard stuff, the custom apps, the custom databases, all these really complex things. They've got to move to the cloud, supposedly. Somebody says that. And and that, I guess, is a massively addressable market. So there could be tons of room for Anthos and Azure and AWS to grow still. Oh, yeah, there's certainly a massive growth potentially in the whole industry. So, yeah, I suppose scraps isn't the right word for it. It was very interesting, though. There's an article on VentureBeat about how keen Google were to prove that they're very serious and they've got all these partners who are using their services. And they spent an awful lot of time on stage talking about these partners. And it feels like they are just trying to prove their relevance. Yeah, I think nearly the majority of the time, not quite, but nearly was spent with partners that were pitching their products, not Google stuff. And I think that's a result of where Google is at in this entire thing. Now it's their turn to prove that their system and platform is viable. And one of the best ways to demonstrate that viability is by showcasing partners that are using them at some large scale. I don't want to give away details, but I know that there are certain companies out there that Google has contacted and offered them a very aggressive incentive to switch from AWS to the Google Cloud Platform so they could use them as a showcase. And it's a very compelling offer. And they're really trying to establish this baseline of industry adoption. 
And they wanted to make that case in a big way. And in typical Google style, they, they got it a little rough on their first try. You know, you give them a few years, they'll have this thing sorted out. But the first attempt, a little ham-fisted. I do wonder what I would pick if I was in that position of having to deploy some serious infrastructure. I'd probably be more tempted to just use DigitalOcean. I don't know. It depends how big it was. But AWS is just the name you know, and you know that it's going to not give you any problems apart from locking, which is the major problem. But if you're not worried about that, it's just what people go with, isn't it? I think Google's point, though, is people are worried about that lock-in, and that's what they're trying to solve here. I mean, this is kind of a big deal in a way. Kubernetes is allowing them to just create this stitching platform to let you deploy on AWS or let you deploy on Azure or on their own platform. That's a bigger deal than I think we can fully appreciate. It's a game changer in a way. It's a market shift in in a sense. And you can deploy that technology yourself. And by the way, it's all free software. That's When you take that all in and what that could mean for future data centers and the way systems are built, it's a huge deal. It does feel like something new. And it's certainly a new approach by Google to even acknowledge Microsoft exists. Like they talked about Azure and they have plugins for VS Code now. That feels new as well. And probably worth mentioning, something not even cloud-related, is Android phones will now act as a security key if you're using Android 7 or above. This is pretty neat. You can set up now two-factor authentication with your Google account and your Android device, which will use Bluetooth, to provide the authentication token to your PC without having to go through all of the hassle of creating a Bluetooth connection and pairing it, they claim. Obviously, I haven't tried this yet. Now, for now, it only works with Chrome, but Google hopes to turn this into a standard that other browsers and mobile operating system vendors will support. And the UI is pretty great. The demo that they showed up on stage is you get a two-factor authentication request, comes down to the Android device, and it prompts you to push up twice on the volume button. And when you do that, that's your two-factor. It then sends a token to your PC, which is running Chrome, and logs you into the service. If that actually took off as a standard and Mozilla was willing to implement it in others, I think that would be pretty great. Google has, to their credit, been really forward-thinking on two-factor authentication um, for a long time now, pretty much ahead of the rest of the industry. This comes off the back of Android being certified for the FIDO2 standard. We talked about that back on episode 95, and we thought that it wouldn't be too long before... We saw this stuff, and here it is, only, what, six weeks later. Yeah, and it's nice that it's like Android 7 and above, so it's available to a good set of users. Microsoft says that a good set of users are adopting PowerShell, but the growth is coming on the Linux side of the camp, not PowerShell on Windows. Yeah, we're talking about PowerShell Core here, and there's a post on the Microsoft dev blog, and there's a nice chart that makes it look like there's just phenomenal growth in Linux use. And you look at it and you think, wow, all these Linux users have adopted PowerShell Core. This is amazing. But then you dig into it a little bit, and it's kind of not quite true. Yeah, you know, I even saw a discussion online about, will future distributions ship with PowerShell as the default <laughs> shell, replacing Bash? <laughs> I saw that this week. Um, well, if you look at it, there's a couple things going on here. First of all, Windows usage is not growing as significantly for PowerShell Core because it's simply incompatible with certain scripts and existing automations that people have written using previous versions of PowerShell that were unique to Windows. That's why I think Microsoft's going to focus on compatibility, and it's just going to reunite the products as PowerShell in future versions. But we're not there yet. 
But in the meantime, you look at the numbers, and they're nearing 12 million activations of PowerShell on Linux. Like, that's a real number. There's a lot of people using this. Yeah, 11 or 12 million is certainly very impressive, and you can see why they want to tout that. But it's a little bit disingenuous the way they've presented it. It's done well for them in terms of the PR that they wanted from the Linux and open source community. So fair play to them. I could definitely see this as being a godsend. If I was a system administrator of a network that had a bunch of Windows and Linux machines on the same network and I wanted to automate tasks across all of them, uh, PowerShell would be like the best thing ever. And so it doesn't surprise me that it's getting a bunch of adoption. And I think it's smart of Microsoft to try to merge those APIs into one common set now. And uh, that's the direction they're going to take it. In the meantime, Mozilla is focusing on machine learning to triage bugs for Firefox. Yeah, more good stuff from Mozilla and something really positive to contribute to other projects as well as sorting out their own. Using machine learning to solve what is quite a big problem for certainly large open source projects where you have all of these duplicate bugs and they need to be triaged and that takes so much time for people to do that. And it doesn't look like it's quite there yet. It's not 100% effective but it's looking pretty good, like it's going to get there, and hopefully it won't be too long before other open source projects can use this, because unlike a lot of machine learning stuff, this doesn't need tons and tons of GPUs to work. You can get it working with reasonably good CPUs even. Yeah, just to give you an idea, the training model was just based on two plus years of bug data, which they've got decades worth. And they said that was around 100,000 bugs. They did have to go through and massage the data, set it back to a certain state, and not the fixed state, and that took some finagling. But around 100,000 bugs was the training set, and that took 40 minutes on a six-core machine with 32 gigabytes of RAM. Hey, I've got a six-core machine with 32 gigabytes of RAM. Yeah, <laughs> Go for it, Joe. Maybe you could uh, feed it all of your podcast edits over the last decade. (laughs) Oh, no, I might put myself out of a job. Better not do that. Yeah, we'll just do it and don't say anything. That's what you really do. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be the pro move. So Mozilla says to get this thing rolling, they developed BugBug, a machine learning tool that automatically assigns a product and component for each untriaged bug. The whole philosophy here is that if they can get the bugs in front of developers faster, then they get fixed faster. So they sent it a whole bunch of data, they trained it up, and it's actually been working decently. They deployed it into production in February and of this year, 2019, and they so far have triaged around 350 bugs. And the thing is, because this is Mozilla, you know it's all open source and that everyone's going to benefit from it. Apart from Pocket, which we're still waiting for, I think, they've been pretty good with this stuff, haven't they? And so they're using all of their money, which I like to go on about at every possible opportunity. (laughs) But they're using that for something really good here because I just can't emphasize that enough. It's something that all projects could benefit from. Mm -hmm. And the bar isn't like super high here for BugBug. There's a few minimum viable things that it could check off the list that would save developers a ton of time. And Mozilla is aware of it. Like, here's a couple identifying duplicate bugs. Like, think about that. That would just save so much time. Here's another one. Uh, Providing additional automated help for developers when bug bug detects that things are missing, like the steps to reproduce the bug. Saving them time there. Going back to the user, getting the steps to reproduce. Or detecting bugs that might be important, um, like something that might be like a very critical thing that needs addressing immediately and getting it surfaced in front of developers. If BugBug could just do a few of those things, it would save a considerable amount of administrative work for bug triaging and developers' time. 
It's not all been good from Mozilla this week. Well, it depends on your perspective, I suppose. It looks like they are very much on track to enable DNS over HTTPS by default in Firefox. But what do you think? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I think you're probably one of the few people that thinks it's a bad thing. Um, and I know why you think it's a bad thing. And I don't necessarily disagree. But this has been coming down the pipe. We knew this was going to happen. We talked about it before. DNS over HTTPS aims to improve user privacy, security, and the reliability of connections by sending and receiving DNS using HTTPS. Yeah, which sounds great, right? Except when you find out who they're partnering up with to do it. Yeah, it's been a bit controversial. They are using Cloudflare right now and only Cloudflare. And this, by the way, will override whatever the DNS is set on your local machine. So your local host file, any custom DNS you've set up, Firefox will ignore that and use this service. Now, the news here this week is Mozilla has published a list of requirements that companies need to meet if they want to be included as a trusted recursive resolver for Firefox's new feature. So they, they are committing to expanding that list, but Cloudflare is the only partner right now that meets those requirements and will be shipping with this feature, at least at first. Well, it's the only partner who says they are meeting those requirements. Color me cynical, but I just, as I talked about on the recent user era, there's just something about Cloudflare that rubs me the wrong way. There's something about not using my local host file that rubs me the wrong way. That's a quick, simple way for like parents to like blacklist a few domains on their local computer to make sure their kids don't go to Facebook or whatever. Like, just put it to set Facebook to go to localhost in your host file, and problem solved. Like, you don't need a fancy filtering system that you pay a subscription fee to. And if Firefox starts ignoring that, well, there goes one of the many tools that parents had on a Linux system. And that's just one example because I'm a parent, and there's a lot of you know I, I have I, I have used the, my host file in the past to to set up fake names for my machines when I'm just playing around with software. Like, there's all kinds of reasons why the software on my computer should respect whatever the DNS settings are for my operating system. That's the way computers are built to work. That's how it should be done. And that's changing, not immediately, but soon, and it will be the default behavior. They may make a UI setting to turn this off. They haven't yet. But you can dig around in the, uh, like the config screens, and you can turn it off in there. So you can override it eventually. But it's, you know, it's one more thing now. Yeah, turn that and smooth scroll off and I'll be set. What? The smooth scroll's great. What's your problem with smooth scroll? Oh, it's just horrible. I can't stand it. Oh, First thing I always do when I install Firefox, a new profile. I can't even turn with that you. Off. You're so XFCE. I can't <laughs> even with you. You turn off all... I, I actually kind of see it now. Yeah, it does fit your profile. You turn off all animations, everything. Yeah. yeah. You might be right. You might be right, actually. But there are other definitely good things coming to Firefox very soon. They're taking a stand against fingerprinting, Joe, and crypto mining scripts, like a very narrow slice of what challenges users today, but important ones. There's a variety of popular fingerprinting scripts that embed on many web pages out there that are really just designed to create a fingerprint around your computer and track you. But probably one of the more popular, fun-to-talk-about ones these days are those crypto miner scripts that use your CPU or your maybe even GPU to mine some currency while you're visiting the old website. Well, in collaboration with a service called Disconnect, they have embedded in Firefox, or will be, I should say, a compiled list of domains that serve these fingerprinting and crypto mining scripts. And now in the latest Firefox Nightly and beta versions, you can turn this on already. In Firefox Nightly 68 and in beta 67, according to my research, you have that available now. Yeah, it's been a long time coming, but it's yet another useful feature in Firefox, so I don't think I can be cynical about this one. 
No, not really. It, do, it, it actually does seem like a very good service for average users. And the language around this, the way Mozilla is talking about it, it sounds like more is coming. Like there's going to be future expanded blocking that's built into Firefox. Yeah, always good to see more security and privacy features coming into Firefox. But security is not something the Matrix Project can really boast about this week, is it? <laughs> That's harsh. That's harsh. Yeah, when you read the public statement, it's like, okay, not so bad. But then when you dig a little deeper into the story, it's it's a little more embarrassing than they're leading on. But the, uh, the short version is an attacker gained access to the servers hosting Matrix.org. And the intruder had access to the production databases, which was potentially giving them access to unencrypted message data, uh, password hashes, and access token. So as a precaution, Matrix.org is strongly recommending, perhaps forcing you to change your password now. The mistakes that allowed this to happen were fundamental. I don't think there's any other way to say it. Developers having way more access than they needed and basic SSH errors. Well, there's the Matrix.org version of the story, and then there is the bug reports or issues that the attacker actually opened against um, Matrix.org, which I think totaled in eight Uh, And now they're all deleted. So on their website, Matrix writes, the hacker exploited a vulnerability in our production infrastructure, specifically a slightly outdated version of Jenkins. Home servers other than Matrix.org are unaffected. But when you dig into the story, and we'll have a link in the show notes, you can find it on archive.org still, you will see that the attacker in, in, in sort of an old school, almost classy way, although I'm not encouraging this attack, but to the attacker's credit, the individual went and opened issues for all of the different infrastructure vulnerabilities that they found, including the SSH access, the misconfigured Jenkins stuff, the, a lot of the misconfigurations that they documented across the entire network were all listed out right there in, in their GitHub, um, which they promptly deleted, but we managed to get a snapshot of before they did. <laughs> yeah, I don't really see any reason to disbelieve them. It all seems quite plausible. Yeah, and it's common mistakes to make, especially when your focus is on the software. You're not necessarily infrastructure experts yourself. The infrastructure is a requirement of the project, not a facilitator of the project. And so sometimes these things just get overlooked. And I think it's important to keep perspective here on this story. As far as we can tell, source code and packages have not been impacted. Um, There's still ongoing research to find out exactly the extent of this. But right now they're just recommending you change your passwords. Uh, they say no plain text passwords were leaked, but passwords could still be cracked because of the hash that they were using. And they also recommend that if you're using their bridge service, like an IRC bridge, you go change your NICServe password. There's no evidence that anything's been breached there, but they recommend changing it. And they have promised a full post-mortem, so I do look forward to reading that. I suspect it will be a lot of what we already know from these issues that were raised by the attacker but it just looks bad for the project. I remember when Linux Mint was compromised, that sort of really knocked them down in my estimations. And I suppose it shouldn't really, because just because you make a great piece of software doesn't necessarily mean you're good at the infrastructure stuff, but they kind of go hand in hand in terms of credibility. Yeah, and you got to imagine it's a tough spot because as a project becomes larger, it demands more infrastructure, which becomes more complicated, but you don't necessarily become more of an infrastructure expert. <laughs> so that's a really rough position to be in. It's a rock and a hard place. I think the silver lining here is that once this postmortem comes out, other projects will be able to read it and learn the lessons. Too bad the Linux Foundation isn't like spending their money on some sort of like infrastructure initiative for projects like this, you know? <laughs> because this really isn't their core competency. Yeah, maybe they should put a few quid towards this. 
I don't know, Joe, that's not blockchain enough. You got you to think Bitcoin here. Yeah, there's always a solution that involves blockchain. But there's been some potentially bad news for Bitcoin in the last week. And that is that the Chinese government might ban mining of it. Yeah, that would actually be a huge deal for the global Bitcoin community. In recent years, China has become dominant in not only the manufacturing of the miners, but also in the operation of the mining pool. Like, um, buildings dedicated to this. It's a massive operation over there. Yeah, if this did actually happen, it would have a massive impact on just the whole industry, I suppose, of Bitcoin. And I saw a lot of articles about this and people getting a bit excited about it. But if you really dig down into it, China does propose a ban on a lot of things, and often those things don't actually happen. Yeah, that's true. In fact, they're just in the seeking public comment uh, phase right now. However, there have been some recent signs that the Chinese government is souring on the cryptocurrency sector. In 2017, um, which was a great year for cryptocurrency, China banned retail cryptocurrency trading, which did cause some uh, impact on the value of Bitcoin. Um, and then in January of 2018, the Chinese regulator said that they wanted to see an orderly exit from the cryptocurrency mining business. I, I don't actually think this would be a horrible thing. If we could get some of these people out of the mining market, that would actually open up opportunities for other people to join. And maybe it would even lower the difficulty a bit. It would be really good for Bitcoin. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, whether it would lower the difficulty or not, because Maybe it would lower the difficulty temporarily, but then everyone would jump on it. And I don't know what it would do to the value of it either. I think the value would probably jump initially as the difficulty dropped. And it's just there are so many factors with this. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, you have to understand that just because you make something illegal doesn't mean that people don't do it. That's true. Yeah. We get to watch a real show here with Bitcoin. Not only do we get to watch people try to figure out how to make money off blockchain, but we get to watch an open-source, math-backed cryptocurrency develop around the world. And then we get to see how all of the different players in the world affect it in a way that I don't think is normally as accessible to us. And the fact that it's all based around free software is sort of mind-blowing. It is. And the thing that I like about it is that I've got enough of an investment in it I think I put £100 in at some point and mined a bit of other cryptocurrency. So I, I've invested a tiny bit into it, enough to give me some interest and, uh, you know, potentially if it exploded massively and became worth a million dollars or whatever per Bitcoin, that it would actually be worth it. But then if it just completely tanks the other way, then, you know, I've wasted a bit of money, but, you know, I've spent more than that on nights out. Yeah. You've got a good show in the meantime. Yeah, exactly. So either way, it's interesting to me. And yeah, um, yeah. I don't know, I think the reality may well be that it'll just kind of settle somewhere around, I don't know, maybe 10,000 or something. Hang on, am I getting into Bitcoin predictions? I really <laughs> shouldn't be doing this, should I? No. You know, I feel like I got out at a good time. I mostly completely got out. I'm like you now. I got it, I got, I got enough where if it really went crazy, it would, it would be good for me. But if it completely bottomed out, it would not affect my life. However, I did manage, I feel like, to strategically spend at the right times. I am in a studio surrounded by equipment that was all bought with Bitcoin right now. And that was a pretty good investment because I did not put the amount of money uh, initially in that I spent on all of this stuff. Like there's a lot of gear in here that is really high-end, state-of-the-art stuff that I bought with Bitcoin. And now I can sit back and continue to use this gear while the value is completely tanked from when I cashed out. 
And so I, I, I that's why I'm, I'm, I'm really at peace with it now. I got what, uh, I got way more than I initially put into it because I got in around 2011, 2012. And uh, I kind of cashed out and, and reinvested that into my business. <laughs> so I really can't complain. And now I've got just enough left that, like you say, if it goes up to a million, that's great. If it crashes, that would be sad, but it's still a hell of an experiment to watch in real time. Well, we won't spend too much time talking about it, but it's definitely something we're going to keep an eye on over the coming months and years, I think. Yeah, we definitely try to find a balance there. But I think looking back at it historically, it's going to be a fascinating story 10, 15 years from now. So we do want to get it down on record. Just like every other major story that we'll cover, check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And great news, the Linux Academy 299 promo for the year is back. Go sign up, lock that in at linuxacademy.com. It starts the Monday of this week that we're recording. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.